0: This is River Roots and I'm Boyan First. Before we start this episode, I want to make an announcement and an introduction. We received a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant to help us produce this show. Yes! What is really important about it are two things. It is going to allow us to experiment with the show formats and that means you are going to get a more interesting radio. And in the interest of more interesting radio, allow me to introduce you to my new host partner, Sarah Cook. Hey, Sarah.
1: Hey, Boyan. Thanks so much for introducing me today. And uh, I'd like to let you guys know that I have a few interesting stories coming down the pipeline. So definitely stay tuned for those.
0: The story we are going to do today is super interesting. Uh, But I do want to give you a warning because it might keep you up at night. We are going to talk about rural areas, mostly in Canada's north, that have to live with some serious environmental issues left behind by mining industry. And it's all very complicated and it's very dangerous. And I have two people who are going to help us out, Arne Keeling and John Sandlas, And I'm going to play their voices so that we know
2: who's who. I'm Arne Keeling. I'm an associate professor of geography at Memorial University.
3: And I'm John Sandlos. I'm an associate professor of history at Memorial University.
2: I'm
1: actually interested to know how these two got together for this topic. Um, I always find these origin stories really fun, so I bet they have a good one.
0: Before I let you hear that bit, there is something you need to know. I recorded the interview um, together, John and... Uh, I recorded them together in John's office and I thought it would be perfect because it's in the basement of the arts building, it's quiet, it has stuff all over the office so the voice doesn't bounce too badly around and it was perfect until this guy decided it's time to wax the hallway in front of the office. Mm-hmm. So perfect when you, timing, it's, Oh, it's perfect timing, right? <laughs> so when you when you hear the noise, and you will hear the noise, uh, that's what it is. We are not, unfortunately,
3: in a mine. Um, okay, but you ask,
0: how did they get together? This is their story.
3: When we first arrived at Memorial, we both knew that we had... Uh, Arne was in the geography department, but I knew his interest lay with historical geography, and I was in the history department my interests have always swayed towards environmental issues. So we we got together for a beer and talked about what we could collaborate on. And years ago, I had written an article about an abandoned mine in the Northwest Territories for a popular history magazine that was then called The Beaver. Um, and that article was about the Pine Point Mine. And Arne had been doing some work on Uranium City. And so we chatted about this. And, and out of all of this came this idea, why don't we do some work on abandoned mines and the issues surrounding abandoned mines. So we started in 2007 and we've really been pushing the theme ever since. So what piqued their
0: interest was this Canadian and global habit of going into remote and rural areas, exploiting the resources, and riding what they call resource roller rollercoaster.
1: Mm, yeah, I kind of object to the word roller rollercoaster. Uh, it makes it sound fun and we all know it's not.
0: True. Also, These two are masters at nicknaming things. Uh, My favorite nickname for these mines that they're studying is coming up. I'm not going to tell you what it is.
1: Oh, that's no fair.
0: Yeah, (laughs) just wait for it. But you're right. This is not fun at all. And it all has to do with this boom and bust cycle we all know about. You know, the prices go up, everybody's excited, and then they go down, and everybody's upset. But the community is often left with a cleaner bill.
2: Here's how Arne and John explain it. Certainly, there, there have been many, many episodes of boom and bust in both in individual mining districts and really across the industry as a whole. Um, We've seen that process in microcosm really since the early 2000s as well. As John was saying, we started really working on this question beginning in the mid 2000s. And since that time alone, we've seen several mini cycles. We've been in in the midst of what's been called a commodity super cycle, which came to a Mm -hmm. crashing halt about two years ago um, and which has not fully recovered in spite of a recent sort of bump in mineral prices. Um, but, but even in the, in the time, in the sort of decade or so that we've been working on these questions together, we've seen these mini cycles of peaks and valleys and uh, slumps and, you know, huge excitement about the prospects in the mining sector. And so it's funny, You, you there's a, a sociologist who's written about the idea of riding the resource roller coaster, and that's very much the case um, with um, mineral commodities in particular and the communities that depend on them. And we see this very materially in the places that we visit and the people that we talk to through our research. I think the impacts of
3: the booms and busts have changed over time. I mean, it's not like it's, it's exactly the same now in, in 2016 as it was in 1930. Um, there's no question. I think the industry will say that some things have improved. Um, there, there. We we do uh, often collect financial security from mines so that there is some money from private industry to pay for cleanup of uh, uh, toxic material that may be left behind, landscape scars, and that sort of thing. Um, But at the same time, the boom and bust cycle makes that process kind of tenuous. If you have a short-lived mine, if there hasn't been a lot of financial security built up, there may be environmental liabilities of that mine for which there isn't sufficient funds to pay for cleanup. Um, And certainly there are many historic cases. uh, The one that we've been concentrating a lot recently is the case of arsenic contamination at Giant Mine, where the liability, the public liability, is over a billion dollars because the company that... Um, uh, was operating the mine late 1990s went into receivership eventually went bankrupt and there is nobody to pay for uh, the cleanup at giant mine other than the public purse which is the federal and and a little bit the territorial governments so even as late as the 1990s though there was some money being collected from uh, Royal Oak mines for uh, the purposes of cleanup it was I think it didn't amount to much more than a million dollars and the price tag now is approaching a billion So the boom and bust cycle does cause companies to pick up and pack up very quickly, and that can have detrimental long-term effects because there is nobody responsible for the site in question. Did you
0: catch that? One billion dollars cleanup bill. The numbers you are going to hear in this story are unbelievable. And I want you to remember that name, Giant Mine.
1: Okay, specifically Giant Mine. Why?
0: That's the bit where the story might keep you up at night. Before we go there, there is another important aspect of Arne's and John's research they really wanted me to understand. In Canada, we have been mining for some 400 years. We forget that because we remember the last boom and bust cycle. Humans are sometimes just like little goldfish, like, Mm -hmm. ooh, boom and bust, ooh, (laughs) boom and bust. Uh, And and what we almost never talk about are the indigenous communities uh, affected by the mining industry. Maybe I'll let Arne explain this part.
2: Well, I think that one one of the gaps in knowledge that we identified at the outset of this project was exactly this question of the historical relationship between Indigenous communities and large-scale mineral development. There's been a literature, quite a vibrant one, since the 1980s, looking at contemporary questions of impact and benefit agreements, uh, labor force participation, how to capture economic Uh, Benefits for Indigenous communities, Indigenous land rights, sovereignty, duty to consult, all of these kinds of uh, developments that we've seen, you know, largely since the Constitution Act in 1982, but also related to changing industry practices, legal requirements, etc. What was not so very well known was the much longer history that really shaped much of the kind of current debates around Aboriginal benefits and costs related to mineral development. Um, and the fact that Aboriginal people have been both affected by, but it also engaged with mining uh, development and and um, from the exploration phase to the operational phase, and then of course also having to deal with the post-industrial uh, impacts of mining in their territories for that full hundred years of sort of industrial scale mining in Canada. So the book project that we, um, that we launched, um, or that was really the expression of a lot of this uh, research called Mining in Communities in Northern Canada, traces that at a bunch of different sites and, and tries to, to look at the, if you will, the prehistory of the contemporary debates around benefits and costs of mining in, in, in Aboriginal territories.
1: Um, I'm wondering what some of the environmental implications of this are on Aboriginal communities.
2: Well, this is where the story actually gets
0: complicated because it's not really that simple. And John is much better than me at explaining this.
3: Well, I think it's complicated. we've We've found um a, a kind of mixture of uh, sentiments and memories around mining. We've done a lot of oral history studies in northern communities. I think there are a few themes that we can identify. For a lot of communities, the arrival of industrial scale mining was the central moment of their colonial history. For them, they will identify, you know, quite succinctly, this was the moment when everything changed. This is when a lot of... Uh, Southerners, white people arrived. This was when roads came, strange foods came. Some of these communities were quite isolated before mining arrived. And in fact, around Yellowknife, they talk about all of a sudden one day hearing explosions and what's going on. You know that 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 there are prospectors on their land, and chiefs went and told them to leave, but of course they didn't leave. So I think um, that's one dimension of it. the other. The other side of the colonial the colonial dimension of mining is when. Landscapes become contaminated or polluted or appropriated for mining over abroad. Some of these operations were spread over quite an extensive area. Um, There is a displacement effect for people. They're not able to hunt. They're not able to trap. They're not able to gather traditional foods or medicine plants. Um, And we've heard a lot of testimony about that. But as Arne said, there's a whole other side of it where people did actually take advantage of some labor opportunities. That's not to say that there were good uh labor integration policies during this period or training opportunities and so on yet still people adapted to to some of the opportunities available in the mining industry rankin inlet stands out as a place that actively attempted to employ um inuit miners in the in the late 1950s and early 1960s and and a lot of those people retain a mining identity so we've heard uh, I, I think in a lot of cases, Aboriginal people will have good memories at work of working at some of these mines at the same time as they recognize the colonial dimensions of the mine. And they're upset about the, the negative environmental legacies that were left behind. So that's the complexity of the story right there. See, that's what they mean when
0: they say it's complicated. And it's not even over yet. We keep kind of doing the same thing. And we still have mines that are closing and are considered dead, but require quite a bit of care to keep the site safe.
1: Yeah, just a little care, a billion-dollar cleanup crew. Yeah,
0: but even that is more complicated than simply cleaning it up. Two things before this next clip. Remember the floor-waxing guy? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he features prominently in this clip. But also, you know when I told you about Aaron
2: and John being the masters of nicknames?
1: Yes, when is that coming up?
2: Uh, Listen to this. And that's why we we somewhat playfully, but actually quite seriously, introduce this idea of zombie mines. We talk about the ways in which these while economic activity has left the region and the place is is economically depressed, it's far from a dead landscape. It's a it's a place where there are toxins potentially flowing into local ecological systems and thereby you know exposing um, local people. There are people's engagements with that landscape on an everyday basis in terms of their sense of their memory or whether positive or negative of their time in that place and in some cases with these zombies, zombie mines there is renewed activity around the site that could include remediation activities which themselves sound great we're cleaning up the landscape we're trying to control toxins but which themselves can also bring impacts in terms of Um, you know, sudden influxes of people at the site. It has the the very real potential to not necessarily solve the problem, but actually exacerbate the problem in terms of waste and toxicity. And of course, as miners will tell you, the best place to find a new mine is next to an old one. And so when mineral commodity prices are high, you tend to see these same regions become the focus of exploration and redevelopment opportunities, perhaps because new technologies are making it easier to capture ever smaller... Uh, fractions of that target mineral so they can go into previously mined areas and actually find it profitable or they just re, um, re-explore the area to look for new deposits that hadn't previously been exploited. So suddenly all these historical issues, so whether it's the historical discord associated with you know, some of these colonial impacts of mining or whether it's the you know the potential for reproducing that same boom and bust cycle that the region's already gone through those redevelopment activities can also themselves be controversial. So mining landscapes, even though after the end of mining, are not necessarily dead and closed places.
1: Zombie mines. Yeah, I kind of feel like we're in an episode of uh, Talking Dead. Walking Dead. No, no, no. There's a podcast called Talking
2: Dead.
0: Really? Yes. Oh, I'm missing on stuff. Okay, Talking Dead. Uh, But yeah, I know. It fits. Here's our
2: you know, early 2010s, you know, zombies were in the zeitgeist, right? There was, you know, zombie shows and zombie this and zombie movies. And there was even some uh, playful academic kinds of work that was being done around modeling the zombie apocalypse and people using mathematical models to talk about. So, you know, the idea of zombies were around and we were sort of conceptually thinking about the 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 ways in which our understandings of mining's history, but then mining's legacy had this kind of undead or ongoing quality that it just sort of almost seemed to suggest itself as a as an idea. It wasn't uh, it was that was about it.
3: I'm not sure we're even the first ones to come up with the term because people yeah. seem to be publishing material with the same term in it, and I'm, I'm not sure they yeah. really got it from us. So uh, yeah, uh. there you have it. Zombie minds.
1: Okay, I'll buy it. Well,
0: it's pretty grim research. Okay, so they deserve to have some fun with it but seriously this concept of not quite dead minds is really important and it has to do with remediation
1: and with the effect on aboriginal communities
0: that too but that gets even more complex here is the next clip
3: yeah i think in some cases um where there's still a, a what we would call a settler community of outsiders Um, Often they're the ones who claim the local mining history and often that's told as a very triumphant narrative. So there is a a discourse around places like Giant Mine, Con Mine, they brought civilization to the north. They created the city of Yellowknife. Without gold mining, Yellowknife wouldn't be here. And so there's uh, somewhat of a a triumphant narrative there that, um, and there's no question that mining capital was at the leading edge of people moving into the north, however limited that advance may have been. I think for the Aboriginal communities, often they try to point to the injustices associated with mining, whether it's it's contamination of landscapes or a lot of the questions around the use of the land is tied up into treaty rights and the kinds of benefits that were often not derived from the mines that they felt that they should have um, they should have been uh, privy to or 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 obtained because of mining, whether that's a royalty agreement or um, impact and benefit agreement. Um, so but, uh, but as Arne was saying, I think there are a lot of cases where Aboriginal people worked in the mines and they identify with the mines. One of the great ironies of the remediation is that even as First Nations acknowledge that, uh, the environmental impacts of, of, of the mine are wound up with their colonial history, they're often competing for contracts. They often have development corporations that are competing for contracts to work on the, the mine remediation that's going on in their areas. And, and that can be a very lucrative form of business for them. Um, and that you know, we saw a chief, uh, the chief of the Ellen a number of years ago at a public hearing on Giant Mine say, talking about the colonial legacy of the mine, but at the same time saying, we are miners, We are drillers. We want to work on the remediation. We're qualified to do this because that community has lots of experience working in the diamond mines in the north. John's right, of course. They have a lot of experience
0: mining, and they also have a lot of experience with living next to a mine.
1: Okay, is this where we start talking about giant mine?
0: Yes, this is where we start talking about the giant mine. I asked John and Arne to describe what giant mine looks like today. For those of you not familiar with Canadian geography. Giant mine is located on the shore of Great Slave Lake near Yellowknife, which is the capital of the Northwest Territories. Uh, It's a huge piece of land in the Canadian North. Uh, Here is John and then Arne describing the mine site today
3: it looks like a waste site i mean really a waste management site there's a lot of um you know gravel roads with trucks on them and and there is a there is a there are old buildings that many of which are in the process of being dismantled or have okay. already been dismantled some of it's surrounded by kind of ha, has hazardous material protective equipment with you know kind of sheeting that they they put the the building in um the area is fenced off you can't go into it there are air monitors to uh, make sure that arsenic is not escaping into the air as they clean up this area. In one spot, there is a test plot for these thermosiphons that they wanna use. I'm not sure we've explained the background of, of how there's 237,000 tons of arsenic trioxide dust stored underground at Giant Mine. This was collected in pollution control equipment, put underground, and it's a huge environmental liability. And what they're doing in the interim is, is freezing this material using this thermosiphon technology. So they look like clusters of basically white piping sticking up out of the ground. And it's a passive heat exchange system that will, they've frozen one of the chambers successfully. And I guess in the short term, it will contain uh, the arsenic, make sure water isn't getting into the chambers. In the long term, the, the goal now is to try to figure out a way to remove that arsenic. That was, a, that was a requirement that came out of an environmental assessment of the project. So there's one of these test plots there. It's kind of very eerie, almost science fiction looking. You go to town talking about the integration of techno- technology and nature. But I mean, at the end of the day, there are also hundreds of uh, shipping containers that's holding contaminated soil. So that's where it really kind of looks like a waste site. There are old tailings ponds. The some of the old headframes are survived, but they're being torn down. Not, I think there's only one left mm-hmm. headframe left at this point. So,
2: it looks like an industrial site. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this speaks to the some of the dynamics that we've talked about. The way that these this it's a very dynamically changing landscape. When we started going up there, there was nothing happening at the giant mine site. There were just a bunch of abandoned buildings. The highway out of Yellowknife, which went up in you know to the east and into the back country and also around the bay to a, a, an indigenous community called Detta, drove right beside the mine buildings right beside the old wreck hall right beside um, the head frame etc that road and, and, and people were out back and forth to their cabins, out to lakes etc. the proximity of that mine to the town you can see the mine from the city of Yellowknife it was, a deeply symbolic and important landscape for yellowknifers. The two major mines of the city, Khan to the south and giant to the kind of northeast, um, they're visible reminders every day of why yellowknife was there. And so the part of this heritage feeling that people have was the sense of connection to that landscape, not with, notwithstanding all of the waste problems associated with it. For yellowknives. Dene people who drove up and down that road between their two communities of Dilo and Detta, It was a daily drive-by reminder of what mining meant to transforming their territory and their land. And increasingly, as people became aware of the toxicity and the deep problems associated with it that John outlined, a daily reminder of the poisoning of their landscape and the environmental disaster that they all sat on top of. This mine is located right on, on the shore of Great Slave Lake the most widely populated very large lake but it's you know all the way around that's the most populated area in the northwest territories you've got a major city sitting Mere kilom, like a couple of kilometers from the mine site, so this is a very proximate danger to people. So now, in the recent years, in the in wake of the environmental assessment and the move to remediate this site, they've relocated the highway. You no longer drive right by Giant. Um, there's all sorts of equipment, uh, as John has talked about, working that landscape now trying to clean up the tailings. Buildings are being taken down. The roaster stack was taken down. The head frame that iconic symbol of mining, right, which is the hoist that goes up and down the shaft Mm -hmm. and almost everybody can picture an image in their mind. That's all going to be gone. So there's tremendous change. It's an extremely dynamic landscape. Again, this is the idea of the zombie, right? It's far from dead. Um, But all of these changes in their own different ways have been deeply controversial, whether it's the controversy around The storage of arsenic underground and how long that's supposed to last, whether it's the removal of uh, the head frames and other buildings which heritage advocates have been wanting to protect and wanting to to celebrate the mining history and heritage of Giant, Um, whether it's the city of Yellowknife thinking about what the long term land use for Ah, uh, this area, which is actually encompassed within the city boundaries of Yellowknife is going to be. How can they use this site, or is it just going to be some contaminated site there forever? it's 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 an extremely fraught um, and but also dynamic landscape.
0: You know when I said that numbers are unbelievable in this story. Arsenic is extremely harmful. It's fatal to humans, even in very small dosages. In fact, anywhere between 80 and 180 milligrams is enough to kill a human.
1: And there's about, what, 237,000 metric tons of this?
0: Yes. Mm. It's a lot of arsenic.
2: That's enough to kill everybody on the planet at least once if it was directly ingested. At least once.
0: At least once. And it gets better. Because you know what? It's going to be there forever.
1: Forever. There's no breaking down.
0: Forever.
3: Well, it's going to be there forever because uh, it doesn't break down uh, unless technology is developed to to appropriately um, remove it safely. There's risks when you mobilize this stuff. And uh, there are there is existing technology you can use an autoclave to um, to basically transform arsenic trioxide, which is the most toxic form, and that's what this dust is, into a less toxic form, um, uh, and then you could presumably store that si- stuff in a in a in a safer, more more permanently contained environment. Uh, At the end of the day, the federal government has adopted uh, a recommendation from an environmental assessment to conduct research over the next hundred years to try to figure out how to deal with this stuff. But there is no easy walk away solution from this because even if the arsenic were were removed, there would be residues in the chambers and then you've got problems of water getting in there. Um, And as soon as water gets in there, then you've got water draining into Great Slave Lake, contaminating. Uh, and it's a large body of water. It's a big pollution sink, but it's a lot of toxic material. And and so um, containment is the interim solution. Removal is hopefully the long-term solution. But nobody knows how that's going to proceed at this point.
2: The original proposal from the federal government was to freeze it, quote unquote, forever. That was a that was a legitimate proposal for what to do with this site. And people just said no. That that can't happen. Number one, it's just not it's not it's not feasible it's inconceivable um and it doesn't you know we work pretty closely with um community activists and first nation people in in yellowknife and they were really the ones who reacted most strongly and most really articulately about this um uh just saying that you know there's no backstops for this there was no legitimate plan to ensure that this site would would have the maintenance and the funding that would be required over the very long term so that it was really illegitimate to think about this as a forever solution and they they the 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 environmental assessment board had to acknowledge that
3: well i mean just just as an example the um water pumping would would have to proceed forever under this scenario that 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 water wouldn't be allowed to come in It would have to be pumped out so it wouldn't come into contact with the freeze chambers the freeze walls would have to be maintained as well it's not like they would freeze and stay in place forever they uh the thermosiphons have to be replaced every 40 to 70 years and so we've we've engaged in a kind of mini side project trying to get people to think about um how you might communicate with future generations about um, the maintenance requirements at this site, how you might communicate about what's underground. And we borrowed a lot of material, a lot of work that was done in the 1990s on nuclear waste at, a, at, a, at the United States, the first, the first nuclear waste repository in the United States, which is the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico. And they talked a lot about using signs, symbols, text, um, and relaying message to the future so that they would know what was at this site. And a lot of what they did was was talking about how to. It was all signs of danger. We got to scare people away from this site, right? And we, as we got thinking more and more about the issues at Giant, we realized that the issue might not be scaring people away because, first of all, with arsenic, I mean, if you were to drill into the arsenic chambers, there's kind of a local potential of risk, but it's not like releasing radiation where it's going to get in the environment, spread far and wide, and be a risk. It's 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 so it's less the risk that somebody might breach the chambers um because the arsenic would be very slow to leak out and so i mean people started mining the stuff that would be dangerous but um it's more trying to engage people with the site so that they are relaying any maintenance requirements from one generation to the next and even though the project has a 100 year time frame on it we see that as being long enough for people to forget 100 years is a long time and there have been toxic sites like Love Canal that have been forgotten in a much shorter period of time, but second of all, that the as Arne was saying, that the site is very dynamic, and what is needed there might be changing all the time. And if that continuity of knowledge of how to maintain that site were lost, and let's let's say there is no solution in a hundred years, and they add another hundred years on, and then another hundred years, this could go on for a long time. And so we're working with local people to try to set out uh, ways that that uh, we might. Make sure that future generations know how to deal with the requirements of this site.
0: That's the part I didn't even think about. How do you make sure that for a very long time... Forever. Yeah, the worst case scenario is forever. How do you make sure that humans who are in that area know that this is a really dangerous site?
1: So did they figure that out?
0: No, not really. But this is where it starts to get better. This is where Arne and John really start breaking new ground. They recognized that the people the most affected, the Dene, First Nation, have tools that are quite effective in transmitting knowledge across generations. They even helped make a film about it called The Guardians of Eternity.
2: Well, in, in many ways, that work is ongoing, and we're working with a, a, a local working group that's having conversations, looking at the whip examples and thinking about the relevant challenges for giant mine. The film, Guardians of Eternity, which was collaboratively uh, produced and was directed by a Yellowknife filmmaker, uh, but collaboratively produced between uh, her, France Benoit, uh, ourselves and filmmakers based at Lakehead University, really tried to explore this question from an Indigenous perspective, which is something that uh, WHIP didn't really do that much of, Uh, to think very deeply about, you know, how oral histories and local traditions um, can be incorporated into um, the the challenge of communicating with future generations. Um, so building on the fact that Indigenous knowledge has proven to be a fairly robust um, and high-fidelity way of transmitting uh, information across generations about the land and about um, social practices, cultural uh, norms, et cetera, et cetera. And if we think about this place as a place where Knives Dene have been in their um in their version, from time immemorial, but certainly for at least 10,000 years or so, um, that seems to be the culture that would be in many ways best positioned, somewhat ironically given the colonial history of the mine, to be the kinds of keepers of that landscape and and the transmitters of at least some of that knowledge.
1: Well, that is hopeful. It does make me angry, though, that it somehow became an aboriginal problem to deal with.
0: It does seem that way, doesn't it? We seem to be very good at taking resources out of rural and remote communities, especially on Aboriginal lands, and then leaving the mess for the local communities to clean up.
1: It must make people feel so furious.
0: <laughs> Fun you said that. I asked Carn and John about how people feel, and here is what they said. It makes
2: him mad, yeah, and it makes him feel, angry. you know, as a settler, someone who is, he's himself not even born in Yellowknife, but part of the kind of settler Canadian presence there, he feels, you know... Uh, Maybe I don't know if shame might even be the right word about, know, well, he talks about, well, what we've done to our fellow human beings here. And that's, that's a cause for deep introspection and concern, but uh, also from his perspective, uh, a, a deep motivation to try and put things right um, the way he can and to make sure that the efforts that are directed to putting that right are good and robust um, and strong ones and ones that do engage with local priorities and, and with Dene concerns.
3: Well, the other the other reaction from the Yellowknives Dene has often been um, connecting the sickness of the land with their own sense of of uh, their own need for healing. So, because the land is sick, that they they connect that. I mean, they were made sick directly by arsenic air pollution in the nineteen fifties, um, and and they feel like their community cannot be healed and cannot be whole until the land is healed. So, frequently in the environmental assessment hearings, a lot of the elders would say, "We want this stuff cleaned up." We, we want a permanent solution uh, to the arsenic issue because until that's done, we cannot have full healing and we cannot um, have restoration of what the land used to be until the contamination has been removed from the land. Interestingly enough, I think anger was stoked again when a scientific report just came out a couple of weeks ago in the journal PLOS One and it was reported in the Globe and Mail that actually lakes around Yellowknife are still contaminated within a 25 kilometer radius of the city uh, at levels, uh, very high levels of arsenic in the lakes, uh, not, not safe to drink the water, not safe for various types of aquatic life and, and so on. And, and so I think that the Dene have for a long time felt that this has been a continuum between their own feelings of, of ill health related to the mine and the history of sickness there and, and the this, this sickness of the land. Uh, itself. So I, I can also say that I've taught this issue in many classes back here at Memorial University and students are just blown away by this. I mean, they're just like, they just say things like, I don't know if I can sleep tonight. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that seems to hit people right in the gut and 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 the reaction is quite visceral. I think Giant Mind, if I was to sort of add a deeper significance to what is a, a ultimately a local case study, I think the lesson is we are as a society in the industrial world trying to come to terms with 100 to 200 years of heavy contamination of our environment and giant mine is just a really disturbing example of of the extent to which uh problems can be created uh with industrial forms of production when there's no no thought being taken for the long-term impacts of that site
2: Yeah. And in that sense, it's a lot like we have colleagues looking at marine plastics. We have, um, uh, you know, other folks looking at different forms of toxicity. We're reckoning with the permanent pollution of both local sites, but also the planet in general. And so how do you reckon with that? And how do you learn to live with and deal with that, not to fall totally into despair, but also not to gloss over those problems and to face them head on? And that's, that's really the challenge at Giant. John, I think, was also referring to this idea of, you know, an optimistic gloss on what could happen at Giant would be to see the healing of the site and the coming together of the settler community and the Dene community as an opportunity for reconciliation. And that's a term, an idea that's obviously got a lot of currency right now in the wake of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and a lot of I think Canadians are starting to take a harder look at their own history in in really productive ways, in ways that are uncomfortable for a lot of settler Canadians, but nevertheless, ones that we need to reckon with because the legacies of them at Attawapiskat, at Giant Mine, at many other sites around Canada are very real and very material. Nevertheless, reconciliation and its notion starts to point to a way forward. Um, out of these things. It doesn't try and brush all of that under the rug, but indeed, you know, reckons with it in the reconciling uh, sense.
1: I'm glad we're getting to the more hopeful part of the story. The connection between reconciliation and uh, environmental stewardship, I find that really interesting. It puts the whole notion of reconciliation in a much broader light.
0: It does, doesn't it? In this last bit of the interview, it's that broad sense of reconciliation that gives Arne and John hope that we can maybe figure this out together
3: what's really hopeful about this is that the community has really come together um you know for the for the first time we've seen uh some reaching out between uh certainly environmental activists and ngos within within the settler community of Yellowknife and reaching out and working with first nations on these issues so there's been a lot of uh, Cross fertilization of ideas and responses, and we've been we've been lucky to be a little play a little bit of a role in that. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't never dare say we're facilitating it, but we're we're certainly in in the mix uh, in terms of our research because it's community-based research. And, and so I think uh, I've been consistently inspired by local activists who are going out and, and speaking very articulately about what is the broader meaning of this place, what lessons can we learn from it, and how are we going to address this problem. If there's anything hopeful that comes out of that, as with all stories of pollution and contamination, it's the local activists that are willing to, to address the problem that is the inspiring part of the story, for sure. So that's it. What did you think?
1: Well, honestly, it's a lot to take in. Um, I was aware that there are tens of thousands of contaminated sites across Canada. I know the federal government is in charge of cleaning these up, but I didn't know the extent of the giant mine contamination. I I had no idea, really. And um, I feel hopeful. Arne and John were great at uh, filling in the gaps that I had and and leaving me with a, a sense of hope that there will be some kind of reconciliation there.
0: Agreed, and it's important to keep in mind that Giant Mind is in many ways an extreme example of how this works, but I think it's important to tell this story because it makes us aware of all the other sites. As you said, there are many of them right across the country. Anyways, thanks for doing this with me. Uh, It was really fun. I want to do more episodes like this. It's way better than just me talking into the microphone. Of course, I'm great company. You are, (laughs) and next time, it's your turn to get the story.
1: OK, well, I do have a few in the pipeline, as I said earlier. Um, yeah, some some fun stories, some not so fun stories, but important ones. Excellent.
0: Want to close the show?
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: OK. OK, before you do that, can I say one more thing?
1: If you must.
0: I actually do have to say one more thing. I promised Arne and John that I would. They asked me to let you know that the research was possible only because a lot of organizations and people supported it. Obviously, the communities and the local partners they worked with, but they also had support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, from Departments of History and Geography at Memorial University, from the Arctic Net, and from the graduate students who worked on the project.
1: Well, it is a huge piece of work.
0: It really is. They're also quite happy to help communities screen their film, The Guardians of Eternity, about the giant mine. What I'm going to do is post a whole bunch of links to Arndt's and John's work on our website, www.ruralrootspodcasts.com. It's all one word, Rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, There will be a link to a book they edited on Norton Minds. You can access that book for free. And we are also going to link to the film site and the research site. Okay, you can close it now.
1: Thank you for listening to Rural Roots. My name is Sarah Cook
0: and I'm Brian First,
1: and we work at the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, St. John's. This show is produced in collaboration between the Harris Center, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. In this episode, we spoke with Dr. Arne Killing, a geographer at Memorial University of Newfoundland, and John Sandlos, a historian at MUN. They study the legacy of northern mines and the effects the mining industry has on Canada's north. If you listen to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let us know if you like the show. If you listen to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they're interested in broadcasting the program. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next week. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcast.com. That's all one word, rural-r-o-u-t-e-s-podcasts.com. I'm Sarah Cook. And
0: I'm Boyan Fierst.
1: And you just listened to Rural Roots. Stay in touch.